Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. From the Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, Editor-in-Chief of Cinemaholics. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. Hey, Will Ashen. Hey, John. From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch, with bylines at Slash Film, Crooked Marquee, RogerEber.com, and Soon the World. It's Abiel Chessie. Hello. You can find more episodes of our show, including our full archive on Cinemaholics.com. You can also find written reviews and bonus content. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail on our account on the Swell app. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. A lot to talk about this week. We are going to be reviewing One Night in Miami, the new film from Regina King, along with Lockdown and herself. We also have some mini reviews to get to, including WandaVision, Ultimate Playlist of Noise, plenty of stuff coming up on that but first for off topics abby will today is the big day this is the big week we are kicking off our first live stream cinemaholics has gone live how does it feel everybody Ooh. <laughs> go ahead abby <laughs> it's, yeah it's exciting i don't know i feel kind of exposed but i guess <laughs> yeah. i don't know we'll we'll get used to it sure, i'm a little sure. nervous but uh, <laughs> I, I hope to yeah like you said like i guess you're a little bit more used to it at this point there you go there right um i've, I've so, been doing yeah. the live stream thing quite a bit lately yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, but also pretty nervous, but we'll we'll go through it. I'm excited, nonetheless. It, it's an exciting time to be a Cinemaholic. I mean, we're going into this new year, and the point of this is that we wanted to do a live thing so that people can get all of these reviews a little bit earlier, and we're also doing a new thing where we're going to be releasing daily episodes. So you'll still get, like, one episode of Cinemaholics with everything that we recorded, which will be out at its usual time on Monday, but throughout the week, if uh, you wanted to, you know, just hear about one of the films we talked about, uh, you can find that, of course, uh, releasing as its own episode. So that is going to be rolling out this week. We're kind of experimenting. We're going to see how it goes. If people don't like it, we'll definitely yeah, change course. But for now, I'm pretty excited about this this prospect. Uh, we didn't do any marketing for this. So we don't expect anybody's going to really be checking us out live. But of course, we hope people will be able to find us on YouTube. And uh, yeah, you now have the option to check us out on YouTube if you prefer listening to the show that way. So we're all here. We're not on camera, um, but we do have our special little little avatars. And you can find us on the Cinemaholics YouTube channel. And you can join the live chat and ask us questions in real time if that suits your fancy. But for now, it, it's just us and we're, we're going to be kicking off. Uh, some some stuff this week. Uh, before we get started with these mini reviews, I just want to check in. Will, Abby, we had our top 10 movies of the year. And uh, I'll, I'll start with you. Will, have you been watching more 2020 films since we last talked? Yeah, I, I caught two that I really did like. Um, I, I mentioned it in the show, but I finished First Cow, which I think if I were to make the list now, that would probably be in my top 10. I don't know exactly what spot, but um, I really did grow like that movie quite a bit. And as I think about it more, I, I really do appreciate what uh, Kelly Reihardt was doing there. And uh, just the whole thing just feels like a very warm, nice little blanket of a movie. That's also very bittersweet and sad. But um, I, nonetheless, I, I definitely am a big fan of that. And I also got a chance. I was just telling Abby before we recorded to watch the Netflix documentary Mucho Mucho More, which um, I don't know if that'd be in my honorable mentions, but I'd probably put it, if I had like a top 50, I'd, I'd probably put it in there. I really was taken by that little sweet documentary, just a nice little character profile on a uh, Puerto Rican television personality that I wasn't too familiar with going in, but 
what it's one of those movies that like when you leave it, you feel like you got to know the guy and it, it just was a really special little movie. So those are two I would recommend as well. Yeah, I've heard really, really great things about Mucho Mucho More. And uh, yeah, I got to say, I, I definitely have a, a long list to get to. I've been so busy this week. I actually only had time to watch the movies we're talking about, which I'm sad about. But uh, what, what about you, Abby? Did uh, anything hit your stream this week? Um, Nothing from my uh, need to watch list has hit yet I, apart from one night in miami which we are going to be talking about later uh i like you john had kind of a busy week so i had to kind of squeeze stuff in where i could but uh i i still am looking forward to checking out a number of things i actually was just doing a a, a top 20 list draft with uh some folks at the screenland armor which is a, a theater here in kansas city oh nice i think they're gonna yeah they're gonna release as a pot uh, they're gonna release it as a podcast at some point in the next week and there were some other things that came up during that conversation that i definitely want to catch up with um for sure i want to double down on making sure i watch never rarely sometimes always uh and also host that was one that came up in our conversation and i I am aware that both movies are good but like the way that folks talked about how much they loved both of them really made me excited to check them out soon sounds good yeah i I definitely uh heard great things about all of those films and yeah don't forget to plug the uh that podcast once it comes out Uh, absolutely on that on that note, uh, we actually had a last-minute voicemail. It came in after we did our episode, but uh, if you didn't listen last week, we played voicemails from you, the listeners, who told us your favorite movies of 2020. And we got another one. It's really great. It's a little bit long, but it's about Sound of Metal. And you know, Sound of Metal was on our lists. Uh, I, it was on uh, my list, and I think it was on uh, Abby's as well. And you know, we, I, we, I think I had it as my number seven. I think Abby, you had it like maybe number four or five. Uh, we're definitely fans of them. And uh, here, here's one of our listeners, um, Film Starlet, wanted to tell us uh, her thoughts on the film and why it was her favorite film of 2020. I think my favorite movie of 2020 would definitely be Sound of Metal. I mean, yes, it was not the most happiest movie of the year, of course, but I felt like I was seeing something new and original. I feel like I haven't really seen too many movies out there about someone losing their hearing. And I felt like this movie did a great job. It did a great job in the fact that we were able to hear what the main character, Ruben, was hearing, or in his case, not hearing. And it wasn't anything like we had to imagine it or anything. The director basically had us hear what he was hearing and we were able to better experience why this is such a loss for him because of course if you're a musician losing your hearing it'll feel like a death sentence to you and i do like how this movie tied in with addiction it tied in with addiction in the fact that they didn't use the stereotypical tropes that we're used to seeing in movies that are about addiction i like the fact that this guy didn't have to relapse with drugs in order for him to relapse, basically. It shows that as an addict, you could relapse in other ways. It's basically anytime you want something and you do unhealthy methods in order to acquire what you want, that's how you know that you're still an addict. And I thought the movie did a great job explaining that. And I also thought the movie did a great job basically showing us what the deaf community feels and what their beliefs are about their own community and the fact that they're trying to show people that being deaf does not have to be a disability. 
you know, as soon as you accept it, then you could, as soon as you accept the silence, basically, then your life could be so much more peaceful. And I especially loved the performances of Riz Ahmed, of Olivia Cook, and even the one who played Joe in the movie. I know he's getting a lot of awards through his performance. And it's funny, I thought it was going to be Riz Ahmed who was going to um, get all these awards. And instead, it is um, the one who played Joe. And I think it's amazing. I mean, if it was up to me, I would want this movie to win Best Picture for the coming year. Most likely, it probably won't. If it does, I will be doing imaginary cartwheels in my head. But um, even if it does end up being where it only wins um, Best Supporting Actor or even uh, Best Sound, then I'll still be happy for the recognition. It's no different than when I saw Room. I was disappointed that it didn't win Best Picture, even though I knew it wasn't going to. But the fact that Brie Larson still ended up winning for that movie, I thought did a great job in bringing awareness to just how amazing that movie was. So yeah, I definitely recommend seeing it. It's currently on Amazon Prime. And um, yeah, I thought um, for me, I personally think that it's should be best picture in the fact that it's a movie that could really touch everybody. I feel like it could teach people everything about the deaf community, about the myths of cochlear implants, and just seeing the transition of this character, someone who pretty much had everything he wanted and then slowly seeing him lose that. But at the same time, this could be bittersweet. You know, you may lose something, but it does not have to be the end for you. It's about how to move on with your life and still finding happiness in the stillness. So, yeah, I absolutely recommend it. Please see it. All right. Thank you, Film Starlet, for your wonderful voicemail. Uh, it, was, it was great to hear this, you know, after we had talked about Sound of Metal. And uh, I think she really well articulated a lot of the key points of the film that uh, moved me pretty emotionally. And, you know, uh, Will, you're going to be talking about a film that's kind of related to uh, the subject matter in Sound of Metal, not to give it away. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I definitely appreciated uh, her take on it. And I agree that it, it's... You know, for awards attention, I think the acting nominations are certainly possible. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you do you guys think Sound of Metal might get a Best Picture nom? Is it in the cards? Um, I feel like it's possible. It's been a really weird year, so there's there's a lot of stuff that's possible. Um, I feel like uh, uh, Best Supporting nom for uh, for Paul Rachi is a given. Um, and probably a nomination for Riz Ahmed as well. Um, just because they're both so great in that film. Um, which. For sure. I guess put, putting that all together, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw uh, a Best Picture nomination for Sound of Metal. Um, I I don't know why I'm like not thinking of it as like an immediate for sure, but like, yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, people are really responding to it, which seems to be a key sign that I don't know what the Academy feels about it because it's kind of hard to read the Academy in general. But yeah, I mean, it certainly seems possible. I mean, I, I, it's such a like Abby said, it's such a weird year with so few, so few prominent standouts as far as like what might get a work consideration. But the weird thing is that even though the year is over, there are still like, I think like at least three or four movies that um, could contend and be, you know, like up last minute upsets. So, um, you know, it's, it's nothing's like for certain at this point as far as best picture, but uh, it definitely has a good chance, especially with Amazon behind it and, and their uh, money and all that. So I, I could see it for sure. But who knows at this point? 
All right. Well, if you have anything you want to send us voicemail-wise or otherwise, uh, you can find Cinemaholics on the Swell app. Uh, if You should be able to find a link to it in our show notes. And yeah, we definitely recommend that you hit us up if you have anything you want us to talk about on the show. But for now, let's move on to our pop culture catch-up for the week. We have some mini-reviews we want to get to before our featured reviews. First up, uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but WandaVision, the first two episodes, have just landed on Disney+. And WandaVision is, of course, the latest MCU series, although it's kind of like the first official Marvel Cinematic Universe series. It's not really like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Daredevil, where it's more ancillary to the bigger films, uh, the cinematic films. Uh, instead, it's it seems like it's like right in line. It's like a continuation of the episodic storytelling we get in the Avengers films and all the interconnected ones like that. It's a very new thing. It's also the first series in Marvel's Phase 4. And the first two episodes are out. Uh, I know critics have seen three episodes so far. I'm not one of the, I didn't I didn't get a screener. I, I didn't uh, I, di I didn't, you know, call up Disney for, for access. I've only seen the first two, but Abby, I know you've seen at least the first two, right? Or did you watch three episodes? Yeah, uh, I got to watch all three, okay. um, which was yeah, it was a nice surprise. I did not ask for that, but they they did appear <laughs> in my in my screener um, account. And yeah, I wasn't mad. So what a fun that surprise. Was pretty cool. I know it was a lovely surprise. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, you know, we we obviously don't want to give a lot of way because uh, it's a very weird show. Um, these episodes are there's a very specific format to them. I don't think we want to give any very specific details, but just general impressions. I mean, the premise is that Wanda Maximoff and Vision are in some kind of weird TV land episodic format. Every episode I've seen so far, it's like a different genre of classic television. Uh, the first one is kind of like a Harriet and Harry, Dick Van Dyke kind of show. And then it like gradually transitions into becoming kind of like Bewitched. And then it becomes kind of like Bewitched in the later seasons. Um, and it's kind of just Wanda and Vision in this weird alternate universe where they're like a married couple and they have to hide their superpowers. And it's like a real sitcom. It's like you're like this, the writing is like, I, I don't know, there were times where I forgot that it's not. A TV land or Nick at Night sitcom. Did you feel that way, Abby? What did you think of this? I did. Yeah. Um, there's I mean, there's a little more going on than that, which I think has been kind of hinted in the the trailers and I think would probably be be evident for most folks who are somewhat familiar with the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe up to this point. Um, but yeah, I know I was I was impressed by how much of it just seemed like kind of a, a pleasant, um, lightly uh, witty and charming um, yeah, just weekly sitcom with uh, with really standout um, supporting performances from uh, Catherine Hahn and also Emma Caulfield, which is always a, a nice surprise because I love Ben Buffy. Um, yeah, and Fred Milano. Yeah, yeah, and, Lush and, and Spirit also, Animal. Yeah, and uh, and also just the it's it's nice to actually get to watch uh, Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen kind of bounce off each other yeah. a little bit with a little bit more focus than they got in the. In oh the, my gosh! Uh, yes. the actual Marvel movies, because I I enjoyed that relationship. I felt like it wasn't super highly developed. It kind no. of felt like it was pushed off to the side. Uh, but but their yeah, chemistry and, isn't it amazingly yeah, good in yeah, this? Yeah, it's really impressive. Um, and uh, I've I've been appreciating the uh, 
kind of emerging discourse on Twitter, uh, is Paul Bettany hot now? It's the, the answer is that uh, he's always been hot. Yeah, I've been wait, on that wait, wait, train wait. since hot now. Yeah, I've been on that train since 2001, my friends. So yeah, it's called it's, Night's Tale. Look it up. It's called yeah, cinema. Exactly. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. He it's called the beautiful mind. It's called the only good oh, yes. part of a beautiful mind. <laughs> Forgot about beautiful mind. Yes. What about um, Wimbledon? Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah. Wimbledon's and, uh, okay, but I mean, yeah, I'm not talking movie wise. I'm talking like his attractiveness and sure. Oh, indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was aware of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, sure. yeah that was a that that was a, a a seminal movie crush moment for for young impressionable Abby, and so I am quite <laughs> happy that I I made that bet early on, and it's finally starting to pay off. Yeah, I, you know, I have been bemoaning slightly how Elizabeth Olsen has kind of been so busy with Marvel stuff that we don't get to see her in really fun independent projects as much anymore, like more artistic films, more independent films, like we did in like Martha Mary, Marcin, Marley, whatever it's called, um, in secret, you know, these movies that kind of like tested her a bit, like, I don't know, for every like old boy in Avengers Age of Ultron, I, I just wish we, we could see her like really stretching her acting prowess because she's she's a really great actress. I don't think she's gets her due all the time with these Marvel films. Like you said, like, uh, you know, Civil War, she she gets some stuff to do, but, you know, it's it's still it's still pretty surface. It's, it seems like she's just like doing it pretty easily. She like drops the accent, you know, that they made her do in Age of Ultron. And uh, I think this show so far has the potential to really like you know, bring to light the talent of these great actors that they have, which is great. So we'll probably keep talking about WandaVision um, as the season goes on. Maybe we'll check in once uh, the ninth and final episode of this season. I don't I think it's just one season, possibly. I don't know. But I think it's just a mini series. But yeah, once it's over, we might have a full on discussion about it. Hopefully talk spoilers. Will Ashton refuses to watch it. Uh, he uh, well, I, I think you said refuse. But... Well, I, I was going to finish un, until you want to watch the whole thing at once. If, if you watch it at all. Right. I would rather do it that way. I mean, okay. I, I I don't know. I, I don't really. I mean, with streaming nowadays, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I'm against the whole weekly thing because I just like to watch something in, in like a week or so. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I'm not like full on invested in it yet, but I am excited to see uh, Fred Melman from A Serious Man in the MCU, yeah. which is pretty it's much pretty, my main point of interest good. in uh, the show. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, I'll, I'll probably check it out at some point, but not right now. All right. Uh, while we have you here, Will, let's do a quick little mini review for the Ultimate Playlist of Noise. This is a new film on Hulu, and this is the film I was alluding to earlier that kind of has some similar subject matter to Sound of Metal. But uh, yeah, what's what's this one all about, Will Ashen? Because you, you did see it. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the biggest thing against the film is that it's coming out after Sound of Metal. But um, yeah, this is basically like if Sound of Metal got the like Fault in Our Stars treatment. I don't know if that's totally fair to say, but that's just kind of like a like baseline premise. So the follow the film follows a kid named Marcus who is a music obsessive. Uh, he makes all these playlists for his multiple classmates and his teachers and his parents. And uh, he is uh, at a concert one day and he meets a woman that he just like instantly falls for, tries to meet her backstage. And then an incident happens where uh, he gets elbowed in the face and he starts to have a seizure. And uh, shortly thereafter, he finds out that he has uh, two tumors in his brain. And that in order to remove them, they'll have to basically take out the auditory part of his brain, which would render him deaf, uh, which is basically a pretty heavy premise for a uh film like yeah, this but the poster um, does not make it seem yeah like, you know like this kid smiling yeah. you know the right. ultimate playlist of oh is this like a nick and nora's infinite playlist sequel <laughs> yeah 
Um, but basically the, the core premise beyond that is that he, before he goes deaf and has a surgery, um, he is going to go around the country, basically go on a big road trip and take all these various different noises that he's collected and make what is the film's title, the ultimate playlist of noise. And along the way, he meets said musician who's played by uh, Madeline Brewer, who uh, people probably know best from the movie Cam from a few years ago. I think you reviewed that with Sam at one point, point uh, in Cinemaholics, if I remember correctly. But um, yeah, so that film, this is the film that follows. Uh, it's this weird kind of film in that like it, it's trying to be lighthearted throughout, but it's definitely more of a drama. And I, I, I kind of wish that kind of stuck to one tone because there's so much of the film that's like kind of trying to be funny. And some of it sort of is and a lot of it isn't. And like it's like I, I guess kind of going for that similar vibe is like something like spontaneous or like words on bathroom walls where it's taking a very heavy subject matter, but it's doing it in kind of like a flip it way, which um, in some respects, like I, I, I kind of admire because it does allow it to be a little bit more accessible. Like this is such a downer of a premise that I admire them for making something that's trying to be a little bit more appealing. But at the same time, there is something about this so intentionally stylistic stylistically driven that i feel like it almost feels a little bit superficial in its approach especially because as the movie goes along and it follows the road trip uh formula it does kind of follow into your expected tonal beats and your different uh different storyline plot plot threads that i i think people will expect as it goes along but um it does get to the third act which i think is where i i find myself a little bit more endeared to the film because without giving anything away it does make some choices that I, I think sentimental touched on, but it doesn't really seem willing to explore as much. And I, I, I really admire the film for how it, it tackles disability and different subplots therein. Um, it, it made me a little bit more warmed up to the film, especially because I do think the two central performances, like I said, Madeline Brewer's in the film. And I think she's terrific in general, and I think she's very good in here as well. And we also have uh, as our lead, Kean Johnson, who I believe people probably know best from Alita. Um, and that was a film that I wasn't, I, I mean, I liked Alita fine, but I thought he was definitely the weak link in Alita, um, because I just found his character to be, you know, your kind of typical underwritten romantic lead. Uh, and, uh, I just didn't really find him appealing in that, but this, he's a little bit more grounded, a little bit more nuanced. He definitely has a lot more to do. And, uh, I definitely think their core relationship is pretty sweet and nice, but I don't think this is one that you like have to see. I'm, I'm very curious, John, if you ever check it out, cause I would love to hear your perspective on this, but. I think for for by and large, I, I feel like it's it's a ultimately middle of the road trip kind of movie uh, that I, I do. I don't dislike per se, but I just I feel like there's something better here that doesn't fully get to come out. So I think I'll give it a high C plus. I'm between a C plus and a B minus in typical Will Ashton fashion. But I think because, it's a Will Ashton Valley, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, where, where movies go to. To get kind of the valley um, of the shadow, yeah. <laughs> it's like this kind of purgatory state where, <laughs> where movies just kind of try to figure out where they want to be. Um, it's not terrible, like, I, I think it, it's admirable for what's trying to do. I, I really enjoy a lot of the scenes at the end. Um, I just don't think it fully comes together in a way that really warrants like what is a pretty heavy subject matter. Um, and like we said, we just got Sound of Metal, you know, only a month or two prior, so. Um, you know, and that that film does a lot of this so much better and a lot more nuanced, especially because this film, it, it does have a kind of like a teen thing going on, but it is R rated. And I kind of I feel like that's kind of weird as well, because it, it's like not super R, but like they'll like swear and they'll like have like different, you know, direct sex jokes. And it's just like, again, it just kind of feels like it's sort of in this in between place. And I, I feel like if it maybe kind of fleshes itself out a little bit more, 
we would have gotten a better film. But as it's, it's fine. I, I think it's going to appeal to a lot of audiences and, and it's it's a fine streaming watch, but there's a better film here that I just don't think fully came out. All right, yeah. So that's Ultimate Playlist of Noise. Honestly, Will, I would probably get to it. Like, it, it seems like a kind of casual, not, I mean, I guess not that casual considering what you right. mentioned, <laughs> uh, kind of watch that I would usually be into. But with Sundance coming up, I got to say, I just, you know, we already have all these screeners to get to. And like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to squeeze this in. But, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. If, if, you were, if you were higher up on it, I'd probably prioritize it. But, enough, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do want to shout out Dickinson Season 2, which just hit Apple TV+. Plus. Last year, Will, you'll remember, I was all about Dickinson season one. I binged the whole thing because I didn't watch it until I think it had all come out. I, I, I don't remember if it was like week to week or not, but because I, I vaguely remember watching the whole thing at once. Maybe it was like, all, I don't remember. But uh, either way, uh, I've been watching this week to week. So I've seen the first four episodes so far because they released the first three or maybe the first two and then one extra. I'm not sure. And yeah, I've been checking it out and I still love this show. For those of you who've never seen Dickinson, it's uh, it stars Haley Steinfeld, Ella Hunt, uh, Toby Huss, uh, Jane Krakowski, uh, just wonderful characters. I forget the actress who plays the younger sister Lavinia, but she's probably my favorite character. But it's it's kind of like a uh, anachronistic alt version of like Emily Dickinson's life. Uh, you know, if she was sort of this like empowered loner who you know there's like pop music uh the show was created by elena smith and there's like she has like such a fun humorous take on like 1850s uh you know new england <laughs> you know there's a lot of jokes uh involving like uh for example henry david thoreau is played by john mulaney in one episode uh you have like all these great like comedic actors coming in and doing funny things sosha mehmet plays uh louise may alcott in the first season and in this season uh, the guy, um, Finn Jones, I think is his name is, the guy from Iron Fist and Game of Thrones, he comes in as this like editor-in-chief character. And uh, the second season so far has been really fascinating because it's exploring like Emily Dickinson trying to make a decision of whether or not she wants to publish her poems and have fame. And, you know, this, this is just a show with like a lot of heart, very breezy 20-minute episodes. Uh, I could not get Will Ashton to see it, but I have gotten some people to see it uh, who are friends of mine, especially I have a friend who is a uh, an English professor uh, and she absolutely loves the show. I, I like kind of explained the premise to her and she was like, mm, not quite my tempo. <laughs> like with Emily Dickinson, it sounds kind of weird, but I got to say this show is just like rock and roll 1860s and it is uh, it's just it's it's hard to explain it's it's the kind of thing where like it's either your wavelength or is it or isn't and it absolutely is mine it's a it's been bringing me a lot of joy you know i've been seeing bridgerton um like almost done with that first season and you know i have to say that one like i watched the first episode and i was like i don't know and then i i've i've slowly like become more enamored with it it's kind of one mute i it has courted me bridgerton um, but I think like that is a show where I literally was like watching episodes. And then when I saw there was a new episode of Dickinson, I was like, okay, Bridgerton can wait. Uh, here, here's the, the stuff that I really want to see. Um, not to, not to like fully compare the two shows cause they are very different, but they are playing around with similar ideas. Um, will, I don't know if this is the show for you. I don't, I don't know if it ever will be Abby. Have you, is, have you ever seen Dickinson? Has it ever been on your radar? What's up with you, uh, with, with, uh, this show for you? Yeah, uh, I've watched a few episodes of it. Uh, I had, a, I think, a trial of Apple TV and tried to binge as many as I could uh, before that before that ran out. Um, and I might I might consider getting an account so I could watch that and, and Ted Lasso for a bit. Um, 
just because I, I did enjoy it. I liked what I saw. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Kate Beaton and Hark, a vagrant, uh, which this that show gave me very similar vibes to that webcomic. So that's it's definitely a, a sense of humor and style that oh, I can yeah. get behind. It's definitely in that uh, that mood and spirit. And yeah, yeah, I have to say Ted Lasso, too. I mean, we've talked about that plenty of times on the show, and uh, I feel like you would you would enjoy it. Abby and I, Will Will continues to tell claim to me that like nobody talks about Ted Lasso on Twitter. I'm like, oh, yeah, Will, I see, I see Ted show, Lasso John. tweets all the time, and Will's like, oh, I never see, oh yeah, I never yeah. see him. Yeah, I, I see have, a couple, but yeah, I have several friends who have talked about how much they love Ted Lasso, and a few who have shamed me into watching it basically because I haven't <laughs> been able to see it yet. So it's on the list. Right on, right on. Uh, will Ashen, you saw uh, this at TIFF, MLK, and MLK, I believe. FBI. MLK FBI, excuse me. And uh, it is, I think, now on demand. Is that the case? Yeah, it just came on demand uh, because uh, I believe Friday was MLK's birthday. And then uh, Martin Luther King Day is, uh, I believe, this upcoming Monday. So tomorrow, depending on when you listen to this. But um, yeah, this is the new documentary from uh, Sam Pollard. And it basically follows the complicated history, to say the least, between Martin Luther King and the FBI. Now, I think... A lot of people who are familiar with the FBI in general are probably not going to find too many surprising ideas thrown around here. But um, a lot of the information that is divulged is pretty fascinating. And uh, while I mean, it's definitely not an uplifting film uh, if you're if you're looking for something a little bit more uh, uh, rousing, I guess, during the the holiday. But um, it is definitely a very interesting and informative documentary that is well crafted. And uh, I I definitely think a lot of people are going to get a lot of good information from it um it's a solid little movie i I haven't thought about too much since i've seen it at tiff but um i am curious to see the reaction especially now that we're coming up to martin luther king day um for the film so yeah that's my real quick and fast uh mini review of mlk fbi all right yeah i I saw that it got pretty good reviews and uh, i don't i don't know uh when it'll hit my radar for sure but yeah I, i just looked it up and it looks like you can rent it right now for $6 on Amazon. So uh, not too bad. If, uh, if you're interested, uh, it looks like a documentary that might be worth checking out. But with that, let us move on into our first featured review of the week. And that is One Night in Miami. Ready for tonight? I'm as ready as a person can be. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champs victory party. Don't be late. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. You know I'm the greatest. That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. How's everybody feeling tonight? All together, yeah. <laughs> New heavyweight champion of the world. Say, champ, you don't suppose you could sign an autograph? Yeah, of course, man. Give him an autograph, Jim. Actually, Mr. Cook. <laughs> oh, sure thing, brother. Don't you think it's about time to party? Tonight is a chance for us to reflect. You mean no one else is coming? Well, this is off to a hopping start. You all are a bright and shining future. You need to understand what is at stake here. Everything's not so black and white like you make it out to be. But we are fighting for our lives. You know I know what's going on out there, right? Listen, listen, brothers and sisters, listen, listen, 
This is a new film from Regina King, of course, who typically we see on the screen or in front of the camera. Uh, this is her first feature. Um, this is a screenplay from Kent Powers, who uh, it's based on his play. Uh, we talked about Kent Powers not too long ago when we were reviewing the new Pixar movie Soul because he was co-director and co-writer of that film. He kind of came into that film a little later into its production and according to several reports, kind of saved that movie um, and, and really helped it become uh, uh, as good as it really is, I think. And with this film, One Night in Miami, it definitely has that mood of like partway through the movie, you're like, yeah, yeah, this this is based on a play. Uh, but I have to say, it it is a little different from something like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I definitely wasn't, I didn't have that feeling nearly as much. So this film is about a group of friends. It's a fictionalized, uh, you know, kind of like fan fiction almost, uh, not to jump into that debate, but <laughs> of like Malcolm X, um, Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali. Uh, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke, uh, very famous, influential African-American men in 1964 who have this uh, after party, kind of a motel room after party uh, after Cassius Clay uh, wins his unlikely victory over Sonny Liston. Very momentous fight. And uh, in the aftermath of this fight, uh, they're hanging out and the knives come out, as one of the characters say, uh, instead of relishing in Cassius's victory and he's doing his typical Muhammad Ali thing where he's like, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Instead of them, you know, drinking and having a good time, it turns out Malcolm X and Sam Cooke especially have some stuff to dredge up and they start having very deep political discussions. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like friendly interactions. I mean, these are portrayed as friends, people who care about each other, who've known each other for a long time. And we're kind of entering a very, uh, in, you know, heated time of each of their lives are all making big decisions about their place in the world, what they're contributing to the civil rights movement. And despite all that, it's not that heavy of a film. It is heavy, but there's a lot of moments in One Night in Miami for levity, particularly with Malcolm X kind of being more humanized than we've seen him in a lot of his other roles where he's typically the stoic all the way through. This film finds uh, some spark, some lightness to his character, some realness to him. And uh, I want to turn it over to you all, but I, I got to say, this is probably my, not probably, this is my favorite portrayal of Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, these actors. I, I, I know people love the Denzel Washington Malcolm X. They love the Will Smith Muhammad Ali. I never really did. I never really saw the real persons there, but um, Kingsley Benadir as Malcolm X, I think is a near flawless like affectation of the character, like embodying of the character. And that's after me watching all these episodes of Bridgerton that he was just in and Love Life, which he, he was in an episode of that. And then Eli Gorey, who plays Muhammad Ali. I mean, it's just like he nails it, absolutely nails it. Um, I also really think uh, Aldous Hodge, uh, who plays Jim Brown, is uh, kind of a stealth weapon in this. And Leslie Odom Jr., of course, is just a knockout performance, as you would expect of him playing uh, Sam Cooke. Uh, we also have Lance Reddick in this, who kind of has a smaller role, but a, definitely a looming one. I, I got to turn it over to you, Abby. What what did you think of One Night in Miami? Are you a fan of this one? Yeah. Um, and just a quick note, Kingsley Benadir is is not in Bridgerton. I think uh, Rigge John Page. Oh, did I confuse the, the two? That we're thinking of. Yeah, he's in Sylvie's Love. Okay. Um, yeah, I must yeah, be he thinking was in, uh, of... Um... Kingsley Benadir is in High Fidelity. That He's the 
the romantic lead in that one. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that it's a great uh, performance of uh, of Malcolm X from him. I think that there's like, yeah, the, the affectation is clearly there, but I also appreciate the way that the film kind of like pokes at the character a little bit. Like he, he comes off as a bit of a nerd, which I appreciate. Um, like they, they, they all enter his hotel room to have like their kind of private after party. And uh, like he has, he has nothing to really enjoy apart from like two pints of vanilla ice cream, <laughs> which is, which is pretty I think kind of telling, um, but yeah. I, I also appreciate he's got like a camera that he's using throughout the film that he's really excited about. And like there, there are some little character moments in there that I think make him seem like a little bit more than just like, you know, big historical figure, um, which I appreciated. Um, I am kind of half and half on this. Uh, there, there are parts of it that I appreciate. Uh, I think that it's, it's really good assured direction from, uh, from Regina King on her, on her first film. Uh, I think it's, it's a very impressive debut. Um, but I, I feel like it is pretty evident that this was a play, uh, before being adapted and I can see how the idea would work better on stage than it does here. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see these characters and the positions that they're coming from in conversation with each other. However, I think in, in the purposes of a film, it's a little hard to see these men as people who know each other. Well, I feel like that relationship is not super well developed it often feels like concepts talking to other concepts about other concepts if that makes sense at all so it's i i think it especially um the uh the conflict between um sam cook and malcolm x it just it feels like we're having we're having perspectives thrown at each other rather than people who are concerned about each other and know each other well. And I it actually, I was, I, I watched this with my parents and I was kind of talking through my, my reaction to it with them. Um, and we, we were discussing how um, I think uh, Spike Lee's to five bloods, which we've, we've talked about. I think it was on somebody's top 20 or top 10 list. Um, my number one. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Of last year. And, and how that movie addresses a very similar form of conversation in a way that feels natural to those characters and their relationship to each other. So it actually made me appreciate that film all the more, but yeah, I mean, I think there are parts of it that are, that are well done. Um, but on the whole, it feels like an intellectual exercise that works better in a theatrical setting than it does on a screen to me. No, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I definitely didn't have that same reaction, even though I was a little bit, I was feeling the staginess, the like, uh, you know, I wish I did appreciate that they went outside. You know, there were time they weren't just in one room the entire time or like one building. You know, they actually like stretched their legs. There were some extra scenes. And uh, I don't know, I, I think I think because those scenes happened and they had some like variety, I guess it didn't bother me as much. But uh, Will, Will Ashton, what, what about you? And I know you saw this at TIFF, um, so right. you're not quite as fresh in it as Abby right. and myself. And you, you've talked about the film a little bit, but, you know, how has the film, you know, sort of uh, changed or not changed in your estimation since seeing it? Um, well, I will say that I think for me, it took a little bit to get going because I think like the first, I want to say like 10 or 15 minutes of the film is like set up for the hotel. And I found those moments to be a little bit clunky. Like, I just, I think... Regina King's shortcomings as a director, as a first-time filmmaker, are apparent in those scenes, like setting up the uh, moment that we're going to have for the majority of the film. But once we do get to the hotel, I I'm pretty in line with where you are right now, John, that like, I think there's so much life and humor and there's so much in those moments that I really did appreciate and just become so entertaining and joyful uh, to watch that 
I really did get a lot out of those moments. And I think because that's the crux of the film, that uh, informed a lot of my enjoyment of the film. But I do have to agree. I'm a little closer to Abby in that. Like, I think the movie kind of falls in between like characterizations of these very famous figures and then like finding their humanity therein. And I think the movie kind of bounces back and forth between that throughout. But I think as the movie gets along, particularly like we were saying, like, I think for me, the star performance of the film is uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir as Malcolm X. I think that is the standout performance. I think Leslie Odom Jr. is probably going to get the most awards consideration because his performance is the showiest, which I mean, like, I, I think he's pretty good. I think of the four, he might be my least favorite just because his is a performance that felt the most like a performance. Whereas like the rest, I, I think for the, the remaining three, like they were able to find a lot more grounded wealth to appreciate or to, uh, for me to appreciate. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to value here. I, I'm uh, definitely a big fan of the screenplay. I, I think definitely Regina King is a very strong um, actor's director. I, I think she could still grow as a visual filmmaker, but like we said, this is our first film. So there's, there's definitely room to grow there. And I hope she does continue to direct. I know she's done a lot of uh, TV prior to this, but um, I don't oh, know yeah. if that's an issue that um, I don't know if I'd, I, I'm very curious to know how I would feel about the film. If I saw this in theaters, as opposed to seeing it on my computer, like if it, if the visual presentation would have bothered me less or more, but um, yeah, I guess I'm somewhere in between right now. And that, like, I, I definitely think the performances and the writing and the acting direction stands out enough to where I really am able to appreciate and value this film for what Regina King is able to accomplish. But I do agree that I think the film does have a shortcomings as far as being, like we said, fairly stagey and feeling like a stage production that uh, it doesn't fully find its, its grounding in that respect. But uh, I did get a lot of out of it overall. I definitely was engrossed in this. It is one of those experiences where as I was watching it, you know, I wasn't spending time thinking about it in the moment. But it, it, afterward, after I finished the film, I did find myself like really reflecting on a lot of the points and um, how these these characters, these actors who are portraying these real people are really trying to balance their personas and how other people view them and like who they really are. And I think that's why the film worked for me in terms of like the idea, I think, Abby, you said like concepts talking to other concepts. I think the reason that worked for me or like I think it aided my experience for some reason is because I bought that. I, I bought that that is how they would show themselves to each other. There's a line in the film about how, you know, you know, Malcolm X in particular is like you used to be a different person, but now the person you are in public is the person you are in private. And it's just like this, like pontificating this like philosophical mumbo jumbo being thrown at each other. I mean, very important philosophical conversation, but definitely conversation that is like losing sight of like why they would be friends in the first place. And so I think think because I perceived the movie being about how these people have become concepts of themselves and not their real selves and the struggle of that. I think that's why it didn't distract me. Like I, I didn't get like pulled out of the film um, as much as it, I guess it kind of sounds like maybe you two had some struggle with like, you know, not really clicking with that energy. Uh, for me, I, I saw it as like an aspect, I guess. And as I watched these men like debate and get it under each other's skin, I, I just saw a lot of universality in that. I saw a lot of like the deep conversations I've had with people when we're supposed to be relaxing and having a good time, but then it ends up being a shouting match. It ends up being, you know, like us judging each other, but then, you know, hopefully coming together. And yeah, I just, I, I found a lot of like, uh, lightness to that. I, I liked how there wasn't like this high stakes tension. It, it was all about like how these people feel each other, feel for each other, and balancing like their responsibility to their own personal well being 
and you know what they want to accomplish for themselves and what they are responsible for because they're celebrities they have the potential to do all of this great you know advocate advocacy for uh, african americans and i think like that central debate and like what does it mean to like benefit your your people and you know what is good what is what is wrong what's nuanced all that stuff is so fascinating. I think we agree like in the writing of it and how it comes together. I just think it's it's very powerful. So yeah, I, I'll say that as my final thought. I just I think this film really, really worked to um, have me introspect. And I, I just really fell in with these characters, particularly Jim Brown, who I think he's not given a ton. And uh, I think that like the prologue really lays it on thick in particular with him. But he's such a great compliment to these other people. And like his role in it, and I just I think Aldous Hodge just the fact that he not only holds his own with these other actors who are just like really killing it, he ends up being I think one of the most important ingredients to their friendship. Uh, it's just uh, it 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 leads this film to being definitely one of my favorite ensembles of the year. Uh, I mean, how could it not be considering the pedigree of the talent? It really is remarkably great. So uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a B plus on One Night in Miami. I definitely see why a lot of people have called it you know their favorite of the year, one of their favorites of the year. Uh, it's not quite there for me. It's definitely in like my top, probably my top 25, uh, really great film. And I, I'm glad a lot of people are going to be able to watch it now on Amazon prime and they don't have to go to the theater to see it. But, uh, all right, Abby, uh, any final thoughts on this one? And, uh, of course you're great. Yeah. Um, and I, I appreciate what, uh, what Will said about Regina King really showing herself as an actress director. I think that's, that's evident in the way that, that these actors kind of do come together as an ensemble and bounce off of each other. Well. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for Aldous Hodge's performances, Jim Brown as well. I feel like of that group, he is to me, at least he's the one that feels the most like a real human being um, or at least a, a well-rounded person. Yeah. Who grounded. Legitimately. Yeah. He's grounded. And it, I, I believe his relationship with everybody else in that room. Whereas it's a little harder for me to, uh, to get behind the fact that, um, that Malcolm X and Sam Cooke are or have been at some point close. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think I was a little removed from it, but I think it's an interesting intellectual exercise. I think the performances are really solid. Um, we haven't talked as much about uh, Eli Goray as uh, Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay, which who he is at this point. Um, and I, I thought his performance was really fun and light as oh, well. Yeah. Like he, he really adds great. like, yeah, I think all of these performances add a certain important ingredient to the proceedings on screen. And I think his is what keeps it from being a slog um, because he's really entertaining to watch. And he uh, is kind of a nice medium position between um, Malcolm X and, and Sam Cooke in terms of kind of what he enjoys about living life, what he enjoys about success and what he is trying to figure out about his future and, and where he sits like, kind of spiritually and movement wise. Um, so yeah, I think the, the, the ingredients balance each other out. Well, um, I'm not sure that the script quite works as well, uh, cinematically as it does as, um, as kind of like, yeah, like I said before, like, a, like an intellectual or literary exercise, which I think it is a very, it's a worthy one and it's really interesting. Um, so I think that I guess brings me to my, my final grade, which is I think around the same spot as yours, John, I think I'm a, I'm a, uh, B plus on this, and I, oh. I don't know that it would. I was be not expecting my... B plus. I was expecting like oh, yeah, no, B minus. No, it's... no, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I still like it a lot. It's not like top tier for me. I would say it's probably in like my top thirty or forty, maybe. Um, but it, it wouldn't 
really break into my my top 25. I don't think it's changed anything about my my list standings from last week. Um, it's yeah, it's worth checking out. Um, and I think it's a promising debut from Regina King. So yeah, B plus for me. Awesome. All right. Well, Ashton, f- finish us out. Uh, your final thoughts and grade on yeah. One Night in Miami. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, You're anxious. You got all this energy, you know, jumping on the bed, ready to... Sure. Um, yeah, I'm pretty much in line with where Abby is, with the exception of... I really did enjoy the screenplay. I, I think it's it's a pretty good transition. Like we said, like it's not flawless in terms of transi- transitioning it from the stage to the screen, but I, I do think there's a lot of life. Like you were saying, John, there's, there's so much... Um, intellectual depth that's explored there i i do think the scene um if i remember this correctly it's between uh muhammad ali and jim brown where they're just like talking in the kitchen and yeah. that that scene is i think one of my favorites from 2020 i just think that's really well done i think the acting is fantastic i think it's really well written regina king that's some of her strongest direction in the film and um yeah i mean i, I don't think the movie is always on that level but i think when it is on that level it's just firing on all cylinders and um, like I said, I'm just really excited to see where she goes next as a filmmaker, if she continues to pursue uh, filmmaking in addition to acting. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do have some shortcomings with it. I, I, I do agree with Abby that I think it kind of falls back and forth, like I said, between like following the characterizations of these famous people and then just like find their humanity. But um, it's just a really well made, entertaining film, I think, by and large. And uh, I do I, I, I'm ultimately going to push back against what you said earlier. I do think spike lee's uh, malcolm x is probably the definitive malcolm x film at least in my opinion like i i think behind do the right thing that's my favorite uh spike lee film and i really do like that movie a lot but uh like i said before kingsley Benadier, I, I think gives the performance of the film even though i do really like the central four performances like you're saying john i think as an ensemble it's pretty hard to to top this one but um yeah there's a lot to like here and i i definitely think it's going to find a wide audience, especially on Amazon Prime. So, uh, yeah, I'll give it a solid B plus as well. Oh wow! So B pluses all around um, for One Night in Miami. Uh, it sounds like we all definitely recommend this one, of course, with some caveats. And uh, I definitely hope people enjoy it uh, to to a lot of extent, and I hope people get something out of it, uh, you know, intellectually as we've discussed. But let's get move on to our next film, Locked Down. Now, in our One Night in Miami review. Well, Ashton, you mentioned, you know, it's, it's hard to top that ensemble, but can Anne Hathaway and she would tell Edgy if do it with Stephen Merchant, Mindy Kaling, Lucy Boynton, Ben Stiller, Ben Kingsley, I, and a few others. I, I probably well, can't even remember. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a film where we're trapped in one room with a bunch of people we want to spend yeah. time with, whereas <laughs> Lockdown is where we're trapped in a room with a bunch of people we don't want to spend time with. Not, so. not, not to the actors themselves. We're not like making sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a new COVID movie. Uh, it was filmed during COVID. It's kind of about COVID, as Will has mentioned. Uh, it's a romantic comedy heist film directed by Doug Lyman. So this is kind of like the first major, like coronavirus movie like directed by a pretty well-known director like somebody that definitely brings people out to see his films you know uh, edge of tomorrow is uh, Ed, american made last couple films he's done that i think we've uh, noticed but uh yeah this one uh, was written by stephen knight as well which uh, definitely gives a little bit of curiosity i think for a lot of people who are a fan of his work as a screenwriter so as i mentioned Anne hathaway she would tell edgy for we uh we have a, a romantic comedy with them that kind of turns into a heist movie. What's this one all about, Willashen? Yeah, so like you're saying before, we're, we're following, uh, I think this was around like March or April of the pandemic. Uh, basically, London is on lockdown at this point. And, I think it's probably uh, May. It, it feels it like May? they've 
it feels like they've been doing this for a while. Maybe it is April. Like, yeah, it's not quite I mean, the summer for sure. Yeah. I mean, the movie makes a point to establish that like time just is like fleeting at this point. It doesn't like yeah. it's, it's hard to know, like which I guess is fitting, but it, it does make it hard to pin down exactly when this is supposed to be. But um, basically, we're following uh, two fairly affluent uh, couples like who are, uh, if not separating, like on the verge of separating at this point before the pandemic caused them to be bunkered in their very lavish home that they, they tend to undersell for whatever yeah. weird, weird reason throughout. The oh, film. we're locked down in this huge spacious, right. you know, fully amenitied, you know, work from home jobs, right. you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm getting paid to not have to work. Yeah. That's so like very relatable. Yeah. It's like what three floors and they could just like, I feel like there wouldn't be a yeah. movie if they just, each had like a, a floor garage. to themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if they just, you know, you know, but oh well. In any case, yeah. Um uh Anne Hathaway is a uh high profile, like um I don't exactly know what business they're doing, but uh she's like if not Who a CEO, knows? like yeah, like if she's not a CEO, she's like close to it. And then um She's a CEO. Chuyato, yeah. Of like a fashion Chuyato, thing. Right, something like that. And then Chuyato Edgy Ford is a uh formerly convicted criminal who's like trying to get his life back in order. And uh, obviously, like his record is preventing him from really flourishing, but he does find this new job where he's basically a driver. And uh, basically, that 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 forms. I don't know if this is a spoiler to say, but like a uh, heist plan that that follows through uh, later in the film than I anticipated, because I was told early on, or at least like from the like uh, previews and stuff, that like the heist was like the general plot yeah. of the the film. But it's for the most part like kind of like a like Nancy Myers pache that just like eventually becomes like a half-ass uh, heist movie in the last like forty-five minutes, which is from a plotting standpoint very bizarre and uh, certainly not the least of the movie's problems. Yeah, it's weird because like literally you have like Anne Hathaway from the Intern from like part of this movie, then you have Anne Hathaway from like Ocean's Eight. <laughs> for like the last part of this movie right. and it just it's it doesn't quite yeah it's, it's weird uh, i forgot to mention i don't know if we said this this is on hbo max so it's pretty easy to to see this one and uh i the first review i saw for this was very positive so i was like oh you know and, and a lot of people have been talking about this and then so like abby Chessy was like okay guys what are we watching this week and i was like i mean i, I feel like lockdown is is a uh, pretty you know it's a can miss like you know we gotta you know good or bad and so abby was like okay and i was like totally up to you abby we you know you don't have to watch lockdown and she was just like i'm being forced to watch this film by john and will <laughs> but uh abby I apologize. Uh, i'm sorry i'm, I'm sorry i got so aggressive with you guys but I really no 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 this. <laughs> being facetious um but yeah so uh, tell us tell us how much you like to lock down abby uh um the movie not just, the event that happened yeah i i'm i'm trying to like parse this through in ways that doesn't just make it sound like a like a horrible takedown um i i feel like maybe this this isn't strictly true because i was just talking about uh how much i want to watch host which is set entirely on zoom um like i think that there are ways to creatively address the kind of communication issues and communication requirements that that so many of us are living with right now um, but in terms of, I don't know, reaction to pandemic living, I almost feel like it's going to take a little more processing for us to get actual great art out of this um, instead of what we're getting, at least on a like a major film level. Um, and this really, to me, smacks of something that was thrown together very quickly with very little thought. The Zoom conversations focus so much on like the 
the audio ticks and things that go wrong when like that happens to me on Zoom, maybe, I don't know, about half the time, I guess, like definitely not every single time to the point that this that this movie seems to be following, which makes it very annoying to listen to most of those conversations. Um, a lot of those conversations feel like memorized monologues, um, and it also kind of gives off a vibe of kind of bored celebrities who are trying really hard to be edgy and seem to have found an opportunity that allows them to do so. Um, Remember that Imagine video? Yeah, this is right. like the uh, the the more um, not emo cousin of that video, but like the uh, the frustrated bit. rich cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. There's a there's a moment when uh, Anne Hathaway kind of rage dances to uh, Adam Ant in the garden of her really nice house, and it's just I I don't know. It just it feels so forced to me. Like it just doesn't. And there are so many other things that are alluded to about these characters and their shared experience together that really don't make sense with how those characters are played. Um, like we talk about uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's character Paxton, his background as like a biker and his kind of criminal infraction thing. Yeah. That also is a heroin addict. Also, yeah, it's like Mad Libs with his character. All of these things. Like, yeah, all of these things. And I mean, we've seen characters with difficult past being portrayed compassionately on screen. Like, for example... Sound of Metal, which we were talking about earlier. And Chiu for gives off absolutely no vibe of that. He feels like a like a well-keeled drama school grad in the way that he performs this and the way that he performs these definitely memorized monologues. He definitely strikes um, as somebody who did LSD once and then tries to make yeah. it sound like he had like an addiction like in absolutely. college. <laughs> and like there are some funny bits that come in like that one time that they were pagans for a bit and the goat was his totem. Like, I find that funny. I definitely don't see that applying to him. Um, it just, it doesn't really seem authentic to the character. Uh, Linda, Anne Hathaway's character, some of the things we learned about her doesn't seem authentic to the way that Anne Hathaway is playing her. Um, as Which she looks as like somebody who has had a successful career and money all of her life instead of having like wild days and one time when she went to Sturgis. Like neither of these people have ever been to Sturgis. It's clear. Um, and... Yeah, it just there's so much about it that rings false to me. The uh, the called in cameos feel like just kind of quickie bits from like people calling in favors, which I guess is fine. It seems unnecessary. It was more entertaining than anything else, I think, in this movie. For yeah, me. Like, oh, like, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, like somebody pops up and like, oh, Clay's bang. I like him. I'd much rather watch something else that he's in for a longer yeah, period of time. It's like when this. you have a conversation um, with someone you want to end and somebody else shows up and you're kind of like, oh, thank goodness. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, Save yeah. Me. I forgot how much I like the square. I'm going to go watch that. Um. So anyway, those are all the things that I, I, I don't know. And in addition to the fact that I, I find Paxton and Linda to be extremely unlikable people. Um, it's the once we get to the heist portion of this, it's a little better, I guess, in that like we've we've changed setting. So there's some there's some stuff changing. Um, there are a couple of like third act occurrences that don't need to be there. I feel like they're there just to kind of complicate things a little bit um, unnecessarily and. I don't know. I think it, it ends far too neatly. It just it feels like kind of a whim that got financed somehow and made into a movie. Mm -hmm. And we were told that it could potentially be timely and there was nothing about it that rang true for me. So those are, I think, literally all my thoughts on that movie. I think I think, yeah, what you're saying is true. I think they rushed it. They were like, we have to put this out before it becomes like too late, because I think at this point, like the, the mood of that period of lockdown is very different from the mood of like the lockdown right now because right now most people don't seem to be locked down really anymore like there's a lot of people who are staying home and everything but like 
things have changed. Like, like I think uh, right now we're dealing with like the virus is like running rampant across the UK and the United States and people have just like given up on locking down. So like, I get the sense that they're like, well, we got to release this movie because you know, the like, script has flipped. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, I, I have, I have two main things with this movie and then we can, we can uh, move it to you will. But I, I think my, my main thing with this movie is like, I, I, I don't think it's terrible or anything. Like it's, you know, it's, I think it's more embarrassing than anything else. Like, I think it's just so revealing of like, the two pandemics that people went through of like the pandemic that rich people faced and celebrities and Hollywood actors faced is so ridiculously different from like what everybody else faced and they just don't seem to be aware of it. There is no self-awareness of like these people's problems and how like their, you know, inconveniences during the pandemic were exponentially more challenging for us for like people and, and we're pretty privileged compared to a lot of people who've had it way worse than i have and so like i can't help watching this movie just be like yeah like you said it's like a whim of like they just came out with a script like this is the kind of script that like they would have revised it and like okay just get rid of the heist thing or start the movie when there's 45 minutes left and start it there and like just fix the setup so that it's not you know, all these things can be ironed out. And also let's like rework the script so that it's not so tone deaf. But none of that happened because I think they wanted to rush this thing out because they wanted to make a just gimmicky COVID movie that, you know, has like the, <laughs> it just it just has the humanity of like a, a wrung out sponge. So yeah, I, th I think this movie is, it, again, it's not technically terrible. Like there's scenes and there's dialogue and it's not great or anything. It's, you know, it's all just pretty average. But I think what pushes this thing to below average for me is that its subject matter couldn't be more uninteresting, especially at this point in time. Um, but yeah, Will, uh, are, are you the lone defender of this movie? Unfortunately not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I, I guess I'm trying to be a little nice this film because I understand that um, they had enormous challenges, not only with the production of it, but just like like you were saying, like getting a movie. Uh, made and finished and released about COVID in a timely matter. But there's also something that just feels very cynical about making a movie about the COVID experience because like, like when are you going to release this? Like it's a terrible time to release it now, but you can't release it later because like, it'll be even more outdated at that point. So it's like, who is this movie even for at this point? Like, is it for, like you said, like the like affluent people who have been stuck at home and just like, aren't used to, having to spend time with their significant other that they don't love anymore. Is it like, like what? But um, at the end of the day, I think it's just a rush script that just doesn't really know what it wants to do. Because like, I think if they wanted to make a like dark comedy slash romantic, maybe anti-romantic comedy about being stuck with a person that you no longer love in your apartment, like that's a fine idea for a movie. Like I, I think you'd have to have someone like Noah Baumbach do it. Um, I don't think Doug Lyman is a particularly well-versed comedy uh, director just based on his past experience. But um, if you wanted to do something like that, fine. You know, like I, I, I know Chuyatel Ejiofor and Anne Hathaway are very dependable actors. I mean, I know Anne Hathaway is like doing capital A acting in this, but I think it's a little bit more endearing than what she did in The Witches personally. But um, yeah, I, I think for me, like, I, I guess where I'm going to push back is that like I could not stand any of the Skype scenes. Like the Skype scenes were yeah, so they, much worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it, it rang of like, oh, the worst thing these people have to deal with is bad connection. <laughs> it's just like I, I like like Abby was saying, like, oh, it felt false. Like, oh, you're in Italy. I heard it's really bad over there. 
like yeah we're doing this it's like yeah it just feels like so telegraphed and like you know pandering at this point that uh like you're saying john it's just like i i just found it to be uh so out of touch with reality and like what people are actually dealing with and talking about in these discussions and also just like there's nothing cinematically or visually interesting about watching skype conversations like i i thought host was fine like i think that movie did a little bit better uh stylistically also because it's a lot shorter than this film but i just like just don't really care about watching skype calls i'd rather movies if they're going to continue making movies like this in the future just please don't do that <laughs> because i was yeah. more in i was personally more into the film when it was just like you know two characters talking about their problems which i do think like i i am not a fan of Anne hathaway's character but i think she did it she, her performance was fine i, I actually do think chuita achifor did a pretty good job especially considering that apparently the film was shot and i think like 11 days or maybe like 18 days and they like they like were so rushed in production that they had to like basically pull marlon brando and like tape lines around the set so they could know what their lines were uh which i mean i i didn't really get that feel throughout so i guess that's you know credit to them as actors that they could uh move past that shortcoming but um yeah at the end of the day i just i just i, I found it to be pretty intolerable because like we're saying like if it's going to just be a like anti-rom-com about people in pandemic that's fine if you're gonna make like a lazy heist movie like it, it breaks the main rule of heist movies which is that they they tell you what the heist is and then like when you do that in the film it's like oh okay so surely it's not gonna go that way because there's no driving conflict if everything just goes exactly as you said but yet that's pretty much exactly what happens in this film so it's like then what's the point like if you were just going to tell us what's going to happen why i don't know it just feels very much like you're saying like a first draft of a screenplay that they just rushed into production because they wanted to get this film made as quickly as possible. And in that respect, it does feel fairly artless and cynical. Like I was saying, like it just doesn't, it feels like a movie that's uh, capitalizing on this point in time and not really commenting on it and anything that's actually involving the conversation or actually bring, you know, perspective to something that we've all been lived through and have a share experience with. And uh, in that respect, uh, yeah, I just, I didn't really find too much to enjoy with this film. All right. Uh, it sounds like you're ready to say your final grade. Mine, I'm a C minus. Uh, just yeah, I think it was basically a C movie, but it, yeah, it's so out of touch that I I bump it down to C minus. But what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a C minus, verging on a D plus. Uh, like I said, I think because I enjoyed the two performances, like I didn't really like the characters all that much, but I think the performances are good, and I, I do think there's enough like kind of back and forth there that I was able to uh look over a lot of the film shortcomings. But at the end of the day, like I. I don't want to revisit this film. I don't I, I didn't really get a lot out of the experience of watching it. And uh, pretty much by the end, it, it's fairly intolerable. And also the movie's mask kit is just awful. <laughs> but it's, it's a minor thing in the scheme of things. Yeah. But like, no one this movie knows how to wear a mask. And it's like, well, I think how, it's because yeah. it was probably like you were saying, like, they were filmed it, filming it so early in COVID. We didn't really have a lot of the mask stuff figured out, if I recall, around that time. Maybe. I don't know. But in any case, that's just something that stood out to me watching it. So, yeah, I'd give it a low C minus. All right, Abby. What about you? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm 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 D plus territory on this. It's really low. Um, I I kind of agree with what all of you have said. It feels really out of touch in terms of like what people were actually dealing with going through pandemic stuff. Um, I think it's underthought, underdeveloped, underwritten. Um, and it's another thing that I mean, I don't know that this necessarily had any hope, but um, like. Stephen Knight, who wrote the script, like wrote and directed Locke, which takes place within a single car. So like he can do a closed yeah. set film. Absolutely. Um, like that's yeah. not outside the realm of possibility. In fact, it is probably one of the only 
unequivocally great things that he is credited as having done when you look at his his filmography, which is kind of shaky. Um, but it's and 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 Lyman is like he's I I think kind of starting to get more better regular recognition now as somebody who's really good with action. So perhaps the issue here is I don't know injecting the romantic comedy status. Like I think there's a possibility to do something really interesting here, but it just feels like every step along the way was the wrong step to take um, yeah agree so yeah there's i think there's potential in that premise i think we could definitely see some interesting stuff come out of the pandemic when it's given like when the idea is given some room to breathe and some some thought but i i think in the in the race to be like new and sharp and timely i think all of that just kind of fell flat on its face yeah, I mean, to quote Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, they're so caught up in whether or not they could make <laughs> yeah, a movie okay. about COVID that they didn't figure out whether or not they All should. Right. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Yeah, exactly. you know, this this movie, it's only eight minutes longer than One Night in Miami. To me, it felt 80 minutes longer. Oh, yeah. I kept pausing and being like, this has got to be wrapping up. And it would be like, no, John, you're not even halfway done. You still have over an hour left. Um, that kept happening throughout this movie. Um, I'm yeah. sorry, Abby, that, you know, Will and I forced you under contract to watch this movie. How dare pressured you? Pressured your hand into it. Um, I think, though, hey, maybe a silver lining is, I know for me, I have been telling people, because people were telling me they wanted to see this, and I have been telling them, do not. You will most you likely go. not like it, and you'll most likely find it really, like, just galling. Uh, particularly, there's a suicide joke in this that really pissed me off. I, oh, yeah. I was like furious at like how light they made of that, considering like what people have been going through. Like that's a real thing, that. huh? I forgot about that. I, I I was I genuinely at that point considered turning it off. Like I would have if like I hadn't already. <laughs> it would I I feel I would have felt guilty if like Abby had been like John forced me to watch this, you know, under threat of like against my cats, and then he ended up not watching it himself. Um, no, I would never threaten your cats, Abby. They're important. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay, well that's. Lockdown, uh, a conversation I think that ended up being as weird as the movie itself, perhaps. But uh, I will say, yeah, I don't want to hear anyone complain about the fight scenes in Marriage Story ever again after watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, uh, good point. Like, I, if you, if I hear anyone complain about this, I'm saying watch Lockdown and, yeah. and, and come back to me. That's why I say. All right, let's talk about herself. Herself premiered at Sundance uh, last year. I had absolute privilege. Uh, Pleasure and privilege. I almost said pliverage um, to combine both words, um, but I guess that would be the case. Uh, this uh, premiered at Sundance. I got to see this on the big screen, which was so wonderful. Um, this is the latest film by Philida Lloyd, who, of course, did the first Mamma Mia, which is uh, a classic of cinema, uh, in my opinion. And it's funny because I was just talking to my mom about how one of the last times she and I went to the movies together, we've, we've been to the movies together like two times in the last like 12 years, mainly because I live in California and she doesn't. But uh, the last time was we saw All the Money in the World together. And then before that, we saw Mamma Mia in 2008, opening day. And uh, it was it was a it was a blessed experience. But uh, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I went into herself, uh, this new film starring Claire Dunn, who actually did the screenplay with Malcolm Campbell. Um, and uh, Conley Hill is also in this film with Claire Dunn and Harriet Walter and I, I gotta say, I, I haven't seen the film since. I definitely want to revisit it. It's on Amazon Prime Video right now. Abby, what is Herself all about? Um, herself follows Claire Dunn's character, Sandra, who is the mother of two girls, Molly and Emma. Uh, and at the beginning of the film, she uh, is escaping from 
uh, her abusive husband, basically, Gary. Um, and after their kind of harrowing escape, her and the girls escape from him, um, they are kind of they're they're living out of hotels waiting for uh, for housing to come up through the Irish government that they can that can basically like allow them to to properly start over. Uh, and in the meantime, Sandra's working like two or three jobs to kind of keep things going. Um, one of the people that she works for is uh, an older a retired doctor named Peggy, who's played by Harriet Walter. Uh, she, I think at the beginning of the film is recovering from a broken hip. And so she needs a lot of help around the house, which is what Sandra is giving her. And Sandra's mother used to be a cleaner for Peggy. So there's an established relationship there in her kind of problems trying to find a house, because basically there are a lot of people on the housing list and a, a shortage of, of resources to give to them. Uh, she comes across the, uh, the idea through some like online searching and some some instructional videos that it is possible for her to build a house for uh, like a, a total of 35,000 euros, um, which is roughly about the cost of, of what it would take the Irish government to house her and her girls. So she is is trying to translate that into the ability to to basically build a house so that she has a place to live with her girls. And Peggy ends up giving her a unused piece of land on her property uh, to build that house on. Uh, she she partners with uh, Conleth Hill's character, uh, Edo, to help her build the house. He's a builder uh, and gets kind of various help from a lot of just really genuinely good people in her life. Like she, uh, Sandra learns to kind of open up and how to ask for help. And she uh, learns how to kind of build a community after she has felt so isolated and scared basically through the process of building this house. Uh, and at the same time, she's also dealing with the existing relationship between her and Gary, who still has uh, a legal right to see the kids uh, about half the time. So she's she's dealing with the kind of the, the traumatic fallout of of that event as well. And all of those kind of come to a a, a dramatic climax around the third act of the film. So that's that's kind of herself in a nutshell. All right. Yeah. Uh, terrific movie. Uh, definitely a standout for me at the festival. One that I remember in great detail, um, particularly the Connelly Hill performance. But yeah, Will, so you had a chance to see herself as well. What did you think of it? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I wasn't I didn't have the highest of expectations going into this because I guess one way that you and I differ, John, is that I am not the biggest uh, Philda Lord fan. Um, You're just one of the biggest. Yeah, I, I am not. Unfortunately, I um, <laughs> I, I didn't care for the first Mia movie. And I, I think Iron Lady isn't really my thing either. I don't remember it too well uh, beyond. Yeah, I don't uh, like Iron Lady as well. So I'm with you there. I mean, I'll say I like Iron Lady more than Mia, But uh, I, I guess that's that's that, that'd be that's fighting words that's where we on. differ. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, neither of the films were particularly my thing. And I, I think. My concern with the film going in is that I found her direction style in both those films to be kind of fairly bombastic and lacking like subtlety and nuance. And I was worried with a film like this that's so heavily from the perspective of a woman who is suffering, you know, horrible abuse and trying to move from it. It was that I didn't think she was going to necessarily have the sensitivity to pull it off. But one of the best surprises for me watching the film was that I think she did that quite well, uh, particularly thanks to the screenplay and the lead performance from Claire Dune. I think there's a lot of uh, tenderness and uh, a lot of, you know, nuance to that performance that uh, I, I was afraid wasn't going to be communicated in the film, but especially as we spend more time with this character and we get to see her perspective and, and the way it, she's mostly silently dealing with these very traumatic and 
and horrific situations. I, I definitely was quite taken by this lead performance uh, from our screenwriter. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the story itself uh, plays out in a way that I, I found to be fairly expected, uh, including an end that I, I I guess I found it to be a little too predictable. There's a, a thing that happens I, I, I predicted fairly early on, and I was a little annoyed that I did predict that because I was like, okay. That, that felt like a very scripted decision that in conjunction or uh, against the more nuance of the uh, direction. But overall, I did like the film and uh, I, I got more out of it than I anticipated. So I was I was happy about that. Yeah. You know, the film just kind of when I watched it, it just kind of warmed me up. You know, I was in definitely definitely a different place when I was seeing it. And there was something about seeing like the just the humanity of the people who come together to help this woman out just purely, you know, just to help her and. I, I was a little nervous about the film as it was going because I was nervous it was going to be really melodramatic and because there is like a lot of domestic abuse that is portrayed in this. And I think, yeah, there's something about the way the film handles how that affects characters without, you know, really like bringing a harshness and a just like bleakness to the proceedings, which it's okay for some films to do that. But I just appreciated this film did. It just had a different take. It had a different experience for this woman and how she relates with her kids, how her kids are, you know, dealing with the trauma of that situation. And, you know, it's a simple movie. It's, it's not, you know, the deepest, it's not, it's not a film that I think is there to really provoke tons and tons of conversation, but I do think it just exists as this nice, sweet little gem that I, I really want to tell more people about. I did tell my mother about this one, and I told her it was from the Mamma Mia director. And she, funny enough, my mom already knew about the film. She had seen a trailer, and she's like, "I really want to see it." And so I hope, uh, I hope, I hope it finds its audience, and I hope that people give it a shot uh, because it, it does. Yeah, I think some people kind of criticize it as like, okay, it's kind of like a lifetime movie. Which, first of all, that's okay. You know, that shouldn't be a slight. But even so, I, I think it's definitely a cut above that. It's very, you know, it's it's got a lot of theatrical quality to it. I'm sad that Abby and Willie didn't get to see this on the big screen. But uh, I hope you can see why I enjoyed it as much as I did. So I'm very, very strong, solid B on herself. I think it's really lovely. Uh, what about you, Abby? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in, in similar territory. There's there's a lot that I, I liked about this. I think the relationships uh, between the characters feel very real and kind and and sweet. It's it's really nice to see people being emotionally generous to somebody who really really needs it. Um, and the kind of evolving relationship between Sandra and Peggy in the film, I think, is is really very very heartwarming and moving. Um, there's a part where Peggy just kind of basically tells Sandra how proud she is of her in uh, like around the around like close to the third act of the film, and it's like I I kind of teared up a little bit because I'm proud of Sandra too. She's done a lot. Um, it's I think there are some parts of the movie that get a they veer a little bit closer to preachiness than I would like. Uh, they're a little bit kind of predictable in that sense. But those are those are fairly minor things. And the movie is not like that consistently and entirely. There's some kind of tragic stuff that rears its ugly head, like very close to the end of the film that I, I don't know. I don't want to ruin anything. It just it did kind of leave me a little bit slack jawed. Um, and I think it, it leads to kind of a nice coda but it did feel unnecessarily cruel as well. So I there are some things about it that I don't think quite work. They feel a little bit rough, but I, I think that the the ultimate goal is is definitely achieved. I think it's a very sweet movie about found family and community and yeah, over overcoming trauma with the help of people who are are willing to help you do that if you just ask, basically. 
So yeah, yeah I think yeah. I'm I'm kind of in B territory for for similar reasons. Excellent. Yeah, very strong message for this movie. Uh, what about you, Will? Uh, yeah, where where do you land for this one? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not too far behind you too. Um, like I said, like I I I do agree with Abby that there are maybe a couple moments where we the qualities of Lord's past two films kind of start to come out, and I I wasn't particularly a big fan of, like the kind of more theatrical moments, but I do think comparatively to like say Iron Lady, like I think that moment of catharsis where like she finally gets to like yell out her emotions was a lot more well-earned and a lot more impacting here than I think I would have anticipated going in. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate the film a lot. Like you said, it's a fairly simple film. So I don't know if this is one I'm going to be reflecting back on that much uh, in the months and years ago, but um, I, I do think what it does, it does fairly well. And, and I, I think as a, character piece and a uh, showcase for our lead actress and screenwriter I, I think it's a good film in that regard so yeah i'd give it a high b minus well herself is now available to watch on amazon prime video uh it's the shortest film i think we've talked about in the featured reviews this week it's only 97 minutes long so yeah pretty pretty quick watch if it sounds interesting to you uh it sounds like you'll you'll at least you know like it <laughs> based on our conversation i think it's worth seeing for sure and uh, i think it's like it's got pretty good reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I think last I checked, it was in like the 90s. So pretty safe bet if uh, everything else we talked about doesn't quite sound up your alley, uh, especially lockdown. <laughs> but all right, thank you for listening to the show. Let's finish things out with some plugs. Abby Olchesi, what have you got cooking in the Abby, o- Abby Olchesi-verse? I got to say that oh, right. Oh, man. Uh, the Olchesi-verse. I like that. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Abby's my, kitchen. Um... Yeah, my my podcast for the the podcast version of my conversation with the folks at Screenland Armor should be out sometime this week. I will warn you, our conversation was very very long, but it was a lot of fun, and I'm glad I got to I'm glad I got to talk to uh, Adam and Blair and Liz about their favorite movies of the year. We had a lot of fun with that, and I will have a review out later this week of White Tiger, which uh, opens on Netflix this Friday for Crooked Marquee. Yeah, and I've, I've been hearing really interesting things about that, so I'm excited to check it out. Okay. Will, what about yourself? What's going on? And, uh, you know, this are you cinema, bl- cinema blending anything these days? Uh, nothing too exciting. Uh, and I apologize for my dog's barking. I think there's a deer outside, so he might be a little rattled. But um, right now, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> he, he definitely he's afraid of deers, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I, at the moment, I'm working to put together the uh, season five premiere of my podcast, A Ogre to It's Ogre. Uh, I don't know if we if I mentioned it on the show or not, but we decided that this year we're going to be watching The Master of Disguise from 2002, which is uh, a film that uh, is not well regarded. Certainly the uh, the least critically acclaimed film in that I think it has a literal one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But um yeah, and, I, and I for think it, for listeners who don't know if they have they don't know the premise of it ain't ogre till it's ogre. You watch this, you're gonna watch this film twelve times in a year, right? Once a month. Once a month, yeah. So each month we get together, we watch the film, and then we just we, we see if we have any changing or uh, differing opinions of the film, based primarily on the fact that these are films that we watch several times uh, in our youth. So like we watch them a lot as adults. We see if we have like kind of similar different opinions going on. So. In that respect, yeah, I, I don't know what it's going to happen with Master of Skies. It's it's easily among the most absurd films that we are going to cover, but uh, I, I'm excited nonetheless. So I'm, I'm looking forward to recording that later this week. But the episode isn't out yet, but probably by this time next week it might be. So look out for that. It's more absurd than Cat in the Hat? I mean, maybe my memory uh, just is failing me. I don't know. I mean, it, the Cat in the Hat does have a plot. And I don't think 
Master of Disguise has a plot. I think it has okay. a premise, so uh, I, I have to imagine it's a little bit kookier, but I don't know. All we'll right. find out. Uh, for me, um, oh, I got something really exciting. Speaking of uh, Matt Serafini, who does It Ain't Over Till It's Over with you, Matt is actually going to be joining me next month, and uh, we're in the planning stages of an Incredibles D&D campaign. So I've been working on this for a long time. I literally put together a handbook because I developed my own D&D game variant set within the world of the Incredibles, like the Pixar Incredibles. The idea, if you've never played Dungeons and Dragons, is we're going to get together and uh, we're going to live play uh, a game, uh, this game that I put together um, just yesterday, Corey and I on my YouTube channel, John and Theory, I helped Corey Woodruff, friend of the show, build his super for our game. Um, he is going to have super stretch powers. Uh, he's going to be a saboteur character, also a hacker. So, uh, and he has a thief background. And uh, I was telling Charlie Ridgely, another friend of the show, this, and Charlie was like, so the complete opposite of Corey, <laughs> essentially. Um, so yeah, it's going to be pretty exciting. Matt is a part of it. Um, a few people that uh, I, I, I don't think uh, have really had their Cinemaholics or um, John and Theory debuts yet. So that's going to be really fun. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Abby, I've never asked you this before. I've thought about it. But uh, do you do you like Dungeons and Dragons? Have you ever played? I have. Uh, I've played a couple times. My, my D&D uh, experience is somewhat limited, but I do enjoy it. And I enjoy playing with folks who have kind of a creative take on it. So yeah, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to hear how that goes. Okay, because uh, the second campaign, I might be uh, ringing up your phone for oh, <laughs> to do. join that in sounds, on the fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds incredibly fun. <laughs> incredibly fun. No, Will fun. would never do it. Will Will thinks it's really nerdy. And yeah, uh, I'm not know. about that that nerd stuff. But um, <laughs> he's about that. He's about other nerd stuff. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but all right, that'll do it for our show this week. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our first live show. I this was a lot of fun, and. Uh, yeah, again, it's an experiment, so please let us know if you have any feedback on the show, anything you think we should uh, fix or address or make better, uh, please do. Uh, but that said, we'll see you next week from the Internet, California. I am John Negroni. From the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you on the next one. <laughs>